As we approach the one year anniversary to the start of the war in Ukraine, a growing chorus of influential voices inside the United States is calling for the United States to prepare for war with China over Taiwan. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we're talking with Dr. Ken Hammond. Ken is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. He was the founding director of the Confucius Institute at that university. He is a scholar, a journalist, an author, and a lead organizer with the organization Pivot to Peace. Ken Hammond, welcome back. Always glad to be here, Brian. Ken, I was struck by the Wall Street Journal headline. We're going to open with that. It's quite a dramatic headline. And here it is. To deter China, Taiwan must prepare for war. Now, the Wall Street Journal is, you know, in addition to the New York Times and the Washington Post, one of the leading newspapers in the United States. They're running articles basically calling for the U.S. to get ready for war. And of course, in 2018, the U.S. Pentagon reorganized its military doctrine in the Quadrennial Report, actually prioritizing major power conflict. That would be conflict with China, principally, and Russia as the top priority for the Pentagon. So here we are almost a year after the U.S. officials were predicting a war in Ukraine, and a war came. Now, influential voices are calling for the U.S. to get ready for another war, a war with China over Taiwan. Anyway, I want to get your thoughts. Well, I think we're in a very, very dangerous period. I think that this kind of headline, and the Wall Street Journal is by no means the only mainstream outlet that's pumping this kind of propaganda out. This kind of headline and the stories that go with it are part of, a, of an ongoing effort by the American ruling elites to heighten tensions with China, to try to create a kind of tinderbox situation where, you know, a war could break out. Not so much, I think, because the United States actually fantasizes that it could win a major war with China, but in order to prepare the American people for conflict over exactly, as you said, over Taiwan. Taiwan. It's a fantasy to think that that could be limited to some sort of, you know, surgical strike or something. But nonetheless, it's a very reckless approach that's being taken by politicians and the media here to try to create a situation of, of provocation and one that I think could easily run off the rails quite quickly. We're on the eve of the issuance of that quadrennial report by the Pentagon five years ago. And they call the Pentagon doctrine says the war on terrorism, you know, after September 11th was the priority, but that's kind of passe now. That's old stuff. Let's get ready for the new stuff. Anyway, when China looks at that report or Russia, they think, okay, the U.S. is actually preparing to go to war against us. The U.S. is the biggest military in the world. It's, you know, five times bigger as of right now than the Chinese military in terms of spending. And it was even greater, a greater amount of spending in 2018 than China. It's more than 10 times greater than the Russian military budget. So Russia and China would think, well, okay, if they're preparing for war, we have to prepare for war. We have to get ready for war. Otherwise, it would be feckless on our part to remain passive. In a way, the doctrine of major power conflict, it seems to me, is designed to be a self fulfilling prophecy. 
Absolutely. I think that's exactly the way that it is designed. I think that we see over and over again reports in the Western media characterizing China as being the power that is threatening, that is menacing, that is expansionist, that is trying to destabilize the existing order of things. And I think that that's a manifestation of what is really the very deep structural change taking place in the world today that underlies American elite anxieties, which is that the global domination they have enjoyed for more than 70 years since the end of World War II is coming to an end. They're no longer able to sustain a world order in which, you know, what the United States says goes and everybody sort of has to snap to and fall in with America's corporate interests. And they see that, of course, as threatening the power and the privileges that they have enjoyed. So they construct a situation in which any move anywhere in the world by a country to strengthen itself, to achieve a greater degree of local autonomy, to be able to pursue their own interests as opposed to subordinating their country to American interests, they see that as defiance. They see it in the case of a country like China, which of course has you know one-fifth of the population of the world and is now the second largest, if not the largest economy in the world. They see that as a kind of existential menace. Even though, of course, China has consistently presented to the world its policies and its practices of, you know, as they call it sometimes peaceful rise, shared prosperity, mutual benefit. But the United States can only look at the world, the American elites can only look at the world through the lens of their own practice and experience, which has been one of aggression and domination wherever it was possible for them to pursue that. Can in the last couple months, the U.S. and South Korea resumed major war exercises that simulate the destruction of North Korea, the invasion of North Korea, the bombing of North Korea. North Korea is right on China's border. So when the U.S. goes into these full-scale war exercises, ships going close to North Korea, fighter bombers, including nuclear-armed bombers that are you know, flying close to China, when you think about the history of China and Korea, of course, the U.S. invaded Korea. It destroyed North Korea in the last two and a half years of the war. China intervened. China has to also see this not simply as directed against Korea or North Korea. I mean, obviously, if China was saying, well, we have a big problem, say, with Mexico and we're going to do major war exercises simulating the invasion of Mexico, and it's happening in the Gulf of Mexico, right off the shore of you know, Florida and Alabama and Mississippi and Texas, the U.S. would perceive that as a great threat. Let's just talk about tensions also with North Korea. And it's not like organic tensions. These are deliberate steps being made by the U.S. government to uh, carry out war exercises that simulate their invasion and destruction of a sovereign country. Well, the, the failure of the American campaigns in Korea back in the early 1950s and the ability of the DPRK to survive and to go forward and build itself up with Chinese assistance and for a long time, of course, with Soviet assistance, that has remained a kind of open wound, in a sense, in the consciousness of the American ruling class. And so, you know, they've always seen North Korea as an unresolved problem, as a target of their hostility, their antipathy. And of course, the North Koreans are well aware of this. They know that the Americans have tens of thousands of troops stationed in the South, as well as being able to bring the South Korean army under its own command and control in the case of conflict. They don't know for sure, but everybody, I think, understands that there's a high probability that there are American nuclear weapons in South Korea pointed at North Korea. And of course, we have nuclear submarines in the water surrounding North Korea. We're in a position of constant menace and threat towards North Korea. A country which you know, really is just, just doing its best to take care of itself and faces severe difficulties sometimes in terms of climate change that's going on and other things. North Korea doesn't really menace anybody. But it has taken measures to defend itself, to try to protect itself by developing a deterrent capability. But once again, you know, the United States constructs any gesture, any action 
that goes to resist their domination as aggression. You know, they invert the vocabulary, they invert the mentality so that people trying to protect themselves are seen as attacking American interests. And that's been the ongoing posture in China. It's, of course, been a bipartisan posture in amongst American, the two major parties. And it continues to be such today. It's a situation where the United States will do everything it can. And I think you're quite correct to see that you know, China, of course, is going to perceive hostility towards North Korea as just a, a minor version of or a secondary version of the American hostility towards itself. And they see these war games played out in South Korea, not just as rehearsals for attacks on the North, but for possible attacks on China itself, just as the, the provocations in the South China Sea or in Taiwan are. Yeah. One of the things that I want to go back to, you mentioned that the U.S., perceives itself as a declining empire. And of course, that's not a new concept and it's pretty widely acknowledged. It's perceived itself as a declining empire at different times. And it's very certain that it's not going to decline. It's going to sustain itself. It's not like they've seen the handwriting on the wall and now the empire is going to like wrap up and, you know, thank you very much to a chapter in world history where we dominated. No, they're going to use other methods and measures and tactics in order to guarantee that this decline is reversed. And part of the way to reverse a decline is to make your competitors or perceived competitors, adversaries or perceived adversaries, to make them weaker, to put them on the back foot. It's also to make sure that your allies, the allies of the empire or the subjugants of the empire, those who are really under its leadership, don't become independent. And I'm raising that because of Japan. Right now, you can see that the war in Ukraine has united the European ruling classes that wanted to be independent, were perceiving that they'd be better off having good relations with Russia, trade with Russia, economic interaction with Russia. All of that is essentially frozen because of the war. And now the US has reaffirmed or reasserted its domination over the European ruling classes, which has been a principal function of U.S. strategy, foreign policy strategy since the end of World War II, since 1945. Now we have Japan also in many ways trying to be independent of the United States. I think the U.S. policy in Asia, in the Asia Pacific, is basically, well, it's got different elements, but the primacy of maintaining control over Japan and making sure that Japan is nothing other than a junior partner, that would seem to me to be a very important part of this big geostrategic game that the U.S. is playing. Well, you know, when the American occupation of Japan came to an end around 1950, this was, of course, right at the moment when the revolution had triumphed in China, when the Korean War was about to break out with American aggression against the North. And I think that it was right at that moment that sort of catchphrase emerged of looking at Japan as, as an unsinkable aircraft carrier. Basically, it's just the United States conceiving country of Japan as a base, as its base, as its the sort of linchpin of its strategic position in the Western Pacific, you know, which of course was a huge turnaround from Japan having been the antagonist in World War II to now being, you know, our junior partner in a sense, although not really a partnership so much as simply kind of our employee or our minion in that area. And that has been a fraught relationship. It has not been popular with large numbers of the Japanese people. There have been protests and demonstrations against the mutual defense treaties over the years. And there's still a lot of unrest and agitation about that. The Constitution, which banned Japan from maintaining a military that was capable of you know, overseas aggression in the wake of World War II, those constitutional provisions remain in place, even as the United States has been pushing conservative politicians in Japan towards greater rearmament, greater escalation of its, you know, what they call their defensive capabilities. But they've been very explicit about developing the capability to strike other territories, to strike other countries. And I think that, you know, the relationship with Japan is quite fraught 
the United States wants Japan to be, and for the most part it has been and remains, a subordinate component of American policy in the Western Pacific. And now that's the encirclement and containment of China. But those policies are, they're not entirely popular in Japan. And, you know, hopefully those of us with a perspective that doesn't see American domination as the best way for the world to be organized, we can work to support those people in Japan who want to try to question that. Yeah, undoubtedly, the peace movement, anti-war movement, progressive movement, the workers movement in Japan, very, very, very important for what happens in the in the region and, and in terms of global politics. So I couldn't agree with you more. We were, as you were speaking, we were looking at some B-roll of Japan engaged in the unconditional surrender following the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And that, that unconditional surrender was signed on August 15th, 1945. And, you know, the U.S. had firebombed the cities of Japan, firebombed Tokyo, kept Nagasaki and Hiroshima as a reserve sort of experiment so that they could be destroyed with one bomb to see what the, what the magnitude of the violent impact of an atomic bomb first used in Japan. So you would think, wow, if the U.S. burned down Japan, used atomic bombs against Japan, they must really you know, want to make sure that Japan never is able to do anything once again. But, you know, I was just reading a book called Chairman Mao Speaks to the People. It's edited by Stuart Schramm. I talked to you about it a couple of days ago. Mao Zedong, the head of state in China and the leader of the Chinese Communist Party at that time, spoke in the 1950s, the late 1950s, about how the U.S. insisted at the time of the unconditional surrender of Japan that the Japanese troops not leave China. They had conquered China or tried to. They had colonized it. They were killing and killed hundreds of thousands, millions of Chinese people. And one of the conditions imposed on Japan in this unconditional surrender was that the Japanese military not leave China. You would think, well, maybe they, if they're that bad, they should leave. But no, the U.S. wanted them to be there. And Mao talks about the fact that the U.S. wanted to continue to use Japan to attack the communists. And at the same time, the U.S. insisted that Japan that had colonized so violently and viciously and brutally colonized Korea not leave South Korea after August 15, 1945, but they have all of those Japanese troops remain at least in the southern half of Korea until the U.S. military could come and then occupy South Korea. So it wasn't a fierce existential struggle with Japanese imperialism once defeated and immediately upon its defeat, the U.S. incorporated the Japanese military as an extension of American power. I mean, it says so much. And again, nothing like that, even though that's an obvious and true fact or facts. When we learn about World War II, none of the people in U.S. schools learn about those facts. Yes, and China and South Korea certainly were examples of that. America urged, uh, well, insisted that Japan not repatriate its forces from Southeast Asia. The French used Japanese forces in Vietnam and Indochina to fight against the Viet Minh. The Dutch used Japanese forces in Indonesia to try to resist nationalist movements there. Even the British, who had suffered a lot through the Japanese occupation of Singapore, turned around and used Japanese troops, kept Japanese troops in Malaya after the war for three years as part of their anti-communist activities there. So this was a broad policy, exactly as you say, that you know Japan was defeated and then immediately absorbed into the new Cold War and hot war in some instances mentality and practices of American imperialism in the Western Pacific. Yeah, and I think the reason this is so important and the reason I wanted to emphasize it is the U.S. as an empire in a very big planet can't really exercise control of the entire empire simply by its own forces. It needs proxy forces. It needed Japan in the Pacific. It needed European powers once restored to also maintain and sustain colonialism or neocolonialism in parts of Africa and the Middle East. In the case of the Middle East, the U.S. used the state of Israel as an extension of American power 
against the larger Arab population that was seething with anti-colonial revolt during that same time period after World War II. So when we think about relations between the United States and Europe or the United States and Japan, we can think about them in the way Samir Amin, the Egyptian Marxist, late Egyptian Marxist, talked about it, that it's one world imperialist system led by the United States, but it relies on this triad of Western Europe and Japan in order to maintain the dominance of imperialism as a global system. Then you have people in the working classes of the occupied countries like South Korea or the independent countries like North Korea or Venezuela or Cuba or Iran. They are the targets of the triad. They are the targets. And then you have countries that are big enough like Russia and thus independent enough, they too become the target. And of course, China, which is not only big and the biggest country and independent, but also ruled by a communist party and a communist party that has in the last decade reaffirmed its socialist goals, its socialist aspirations. And you can see that this has led to this profound reorganization of American foreign policy. I mean, I want to emphasize the profundity of this shift, because when you prepare for global war, that you arrive at that position as a consensus within the broader body politic. It's in the media, Congress, the White House, the Pentagon. It's all over, almost without debate. We have to take that seriously because the U.S., as the managers of an empire that is in decline, are absolutely committed to not having that decline take place. And thus, the danger of war becomes very, very real, even though on the surface it seems absolutely insane, irrational, and implausible. True enough, true enough. And I think that we can see things like the changing relationship, not just the rhetoric, but the expenditures of taxpayer funds and things like that on these new arms programs for Japan and on these missile installations being put into South Korea and on all the weapons being supplied to Taiwan. As the American imperial order has entered into this period of crisis, it's not just that they're going to go on with relying on their allies, their minions in various ways, but there we started to hear this under Trump, and Biden has certainly carried this forward, this idea that the Europeans or the Japanese or the South Koreans need to you know, take a greater responsibility for their own security, for their own defense, basically meaning they need to share the costs of defending American interests. So that's on the one hand, part of the ongoing long-term strategy of managing the empire, managing these relationships in order to protect American interests. But it's also right now a reflection of the need by the American elites to share some of the burden, or at least to, let's say, just to offload some of the costs, to try to impose that, to try to get Japan or Germany or whoever to assume a greater share of the costs of defending the core interests of the American dominated empire. One of the interesting things that I think people don't remember, certainly Democrats don't remember, maybe it's a willful loss of memory, is that when Donald Trump was demanding that the NATO partners step up and spend more of their annual federal budget on military spending, he said, it's got to be 2% or we're going to shut off the, you know, our support for you. You, Europe, have to spend 2% of your, your national budget on defense spend, so-called defense spending, war spending. And the Democrats and the liberals, pro-democratic media, were then chastising Trump because he was being unkind to NATO allies. He was like disrespecting NATO and talking tough to them and maybe he would harm the relationship. But it was Barack Obama who insisted that the NATO countries step up and increase their military spending to 2%. The only thing that Trump did, the only thing that he did was he tried to put like teeth in it and make a you know real demand and use it as a demagogic position for his make America great, America has to go it alone kind of rhetoric for his political base. But there was a lot of continuity right there between Barack Obama, who's not a Republican, he's not a conservative, he's a Democrat, 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it was Obama's policy. It didn't start with Trump. Well, and of course, the same is true with the pivot to Asia. The same is true with this aggressive posture towards China, that these things, these are bipartisan initiatives. The divisions within the American ruling class, you know, are played out in these public theaters of politics. But the deep core interests, the interest in the perpetuation of American global dominance, they may squabble about how best to pursue that. And they may, you know, engage in their rhetorical demonization of each other. But when push comes to shove, what we see is that the American elites are united in their core interests. And certainly, whether it's Obama or Trump or Biden, you know, they consistently pursue the maintenance and perpetuation of American dominance. I want to go back to that Wall Street Journal article where we started with the headline, the U.S. and Taiwan must prepare for war. Now, I want to read some of the sentences from that article from that editorial, Ken, because they indicate you have to read it carefully. It's hard for people to really know how to read the capitalist newspapers because a lot of it is written, you know, with great thought and dexterity and nuance and subtlety. So you have to kind of read between the lines sometimes to really get what the big drift is. But I'm going to read a couple sentences to you and get you to comment on each of them. Washington wants to make Taiwan more defensible. So you have Washington wants to make Taiwan more defensible. It's not Taiwan saying this, it's Washington. The National Defense Authorization Act, which President Biden signed last Friday, provides $10 billion in new security assistance to Taiwan over the next five years. Well, that's a lot of money, $10 billion in addition to what the U.S. is already doing. So $10 billion, just to put it in perspective, North Korea's annual military budget is $4 billion, so substantially larger. And then the next sentence says, America has given Taiwan both a friendly push, you know how those friendly pushes are, <laughs> and a hard shove in the National Defense Authorization Act, meaning this bill, the National Defense Authorization Act, passed by Congress, $10 billion more for Taiwan. It's being imposed on Taiwan. They call it aid, but it's actually that we're going to have to push them in a friendly way or shove them real hard because maybe this isn't actually the real strategy of Taiwan. Maybe this is absolutely the strategy of the two political parties, the ruling class parties and the Pentagon. Well, you know, I think that we can think here about the analogy of the situation in Ukraine, which is that the United States is happy to pump into that conflict just enough resources to keep the conflict going. The long-term objective of American policy there is to weaken Russia, to bring Russia down so that its ability to defy American domination is going to be impaired, if not destroyed. And, you know, so the strategy isn't let's go in and go help Ukraine do whatever it needs to do. The strategy is to keep Ukrainians dying and bleeding to continue to weaken Russia. And Taiwan had better pay attention to that because that appears to be exactly what the intention is here. We see this soft push and hard shove as, or we ought to see it, as exactly pre-positioning Taiwan to bear the same kind of costs. Now, obviously, I think the situation, the actual strategic situation in Taiwan is very, very different from that in Ukraine. And I, there's no real threat from China. China has been very, very clear, has reiterated its position many, many, many times, most recently, of course, at the 20th Party Congress last October, that the Taiwanese question is something, it's an internal problem of the Chinese people on both sides of the straits. They're going to resolve it in their own way, in their own time, and they don't want any outside interference in that. But there's never been a position that says, you know, we're going to invade Taiwan. We want to invade Taiwan. We're just waiting for the chance to invade Taiwan. They've been very clear that this should be resolved peacefully, but they will not tolerate outside direct intervention to try to break Taiwan away. Well, even given that, the United States wants to force Taiwan into a situation where if they could manage to provoke China 
to attack, which is really what they want. They want to provoke China into an act of aggression, an act of trying to prevent Taiwan from splitting away. If they could manage to provoke China into that, then they would be able, or at least they hope they would be able, to use these weapon systems and this military support to weaken China, to draw it into a local war which would disrupt its economy, which would draw down its viability, might lead to unrest or something like that. This is their hope and their fantasy. So Taiwan should pay very close attention to this, and it, it probably suggests why this idea of a hard shove, why the Americans understand that that's necessary, because most people in Taiwan don't want a change in the status quo. They want things to stay the things, the relationship with the mainland to remain as it has been, so that it can be worked out over a longer period. The forces calling for independence are a tiny you know, political faction in the elite, and the vast majority of people in Taiwan, poll after poll have demonstrated, really would just like things to kind of muddle along. The Chinese had Hong Kong come back to China, back to the motherland, so to speak, in 1997 after it had been seized as part of the so-called opium wars which were really just Britain, British imperialism imposing or trying to impose its will on China, demanding that China import opium from Britain so that it could finance British colonialism over India. And Hong Kong was seized at that time and made into a colony by the British. And the Chinese had their revolution in 1949. They could have taken Hong Kong right then. Matter of fact, the British were assuming that they were going to lose it. They were preparing to evacuate. But Mao Zedong and the leadership of the Communist Party didn't take it. You know, we don't even need really to talk about that right now. My point is they could have taken it militarily and they didn't. Instead, China waited until 1997 and through a long negotiation process had Hong Kong returned to Chinese sovereignty. Now, that's right on, I mean, that's literally on the mainland border of, of China. Yeah. So it would have been easy, and China didn't do it. Here you have Taiwan further away, a bigger military. The idea that China would now, in the middle of its efforts to economically develop itself as its top priority, to bring the country out of poverty, and it just recently lifted or completed the process where it lifted 850 million people out of dire poverty. So its economic development is its priority. Why at this moment in 2023, the Chinese would say, no, now we're going to actually, unlike in Hong Kong, we're going to go to war in Taiwan. I mean, that makes no sense unless the U.S. was actually doing things militarily that made a military action on the part of China an imperative need. So you can see what we have here is a manufactured crisis. This is 100% manufactured by the United States because forces inside the American political establishment, the ruling class establishment, want to make their struggle with China, major power conflict with China, become a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's what they want. I think some of this history demonstrates that at least, you know, if you put together logic and rational arguments and put the Taiwan situation into that kind of context. And finally, and I'll just finish here and then get your comments. In the last couple decades, Taiwan and China have been peacefully trading with each other to the advantage of both. So why would China now say, oh, we don't care about that anymore? We want to have a military invasion into Taiwan. Exactly. Actually, it's just complete craziness. It is. It is. And, you know, this is a crisis to the extent that it is a crisis that has been engendered by the United States in pursuit of its objectives, which are to to thwart China's development, its re-emergence as a significant participant in global affairs. I think that there's, you know, the historical precedent of Hong Kong is one. China, of course, has a very long historical memory, and it should be borne in mind that all the way back in the transition from the Ming Dynasty to the Qing Dynasty in the middle of the 17th century, 
Ming loyalists, remnants of the former dynasty, withdrew to Taiwan and held out there for more than half a century. And the Qing dynasty on the mainland, the new dynasty on the mainland, awaited for developments, took part in trying to reestablish coastal security and things like that. And eventually, Taiwan was reunited with the mainland. The Dutch, of course, had gotten in there and the Portuguese trying to establish colonialism and the Chinese chased them out as well. But, you know, that kind of long-term patience, that ability to wait for things to change and resolve themselves in their own way amongst the Chinese people, that's been demonstrated repeatedly repeatedly in the past. And I think in the present, exactly as you mentioned at the end there, the integration, the economic integration of Taiwan and the rest of the country has deepened steadily over the last few decades. Hundreds of thousands of people from Taiwan live and work on the mainland. Millions of tourists and travelers from the mainland visit Taiwan every year. There's investment both ways across the straits. And, you know, the integration of these two parts of the country has been deepening steadily. So, yeah, it's not in the interest of anybody on either side of the strait for there to be any kind of serious conflict, any kind of real conflict. And both the government and the party on the mainland and, you know, responsible people on Taiwan are very clear that, you know, we should continue to be patient and let this situation go forward. It is the United States, it is politicians in the United States, fearful of China's rise, fearful of China's emerging role in the world, fearful of losing their own power and privileges that has created this conflict, created this antagonism in a very self-conscious way. When Obama launched the pivot to Asia, when Trump talked about offshoring you know, military responsibilities in this part of the world, when Biden has pursued these policies even more aggressively than these other predecessors, what we see is a long-term commitment to try to halt China's development and to try to protect American domination. I want to help folks understand also the evolution of American politics, because if we don't understand what's going on inside U.S. politics, we won't understand what really is driving this new hyper-aggressive strategy. I was reading a book by our friend Michael Parenti, written in 1989, called The Sword and the Dollar. And he described American politics like this. He said, well, there's the two ruling class parties. They're both committed to monopoly capitalism and, and imperialism. They're both basically committed to the Pentagon as an agency for the maintaining U.S. world domination. But there's a significant political difference between the conservatives, meaning the right wing, and the liberals. And he said the right wing is always painting the world as a dangerous place, a fearful place, and that we must prepare for extreme military activity, that this was the motivation, the demagogic motivation for this hyper-militarized orientation. This was at the end of the Reagan decade, 1989. And Parenti describes the liberals as being softer, not as committed to the war, but because they're kind of weak in the face of right-wing anti-communist criticism, they want to show that they're not completely weak and completely sort of unable to fight against socialism and communism and the bad guys. And so they basically rubber stamp the conservative military political position. The reason I'm raising this is that here we are 34 years later, and the liberals don't look at all like they're softer in terms of U.S. military posture. They don't look like they're softer than the conservatives. They don't look like they're just sort of, you know, responding to criticisms from the right wing about their weakness because they're doves or pacifists or, you know, they have rose-colored glasses on about how the world can live together. Like that era of liberalism is kind of gone. And so the reason I'm mentioning it is Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, she was in August, the third in succession, the leading Democrat outside of the president and the vice president was the one who took the trip to Taiwan. She was the one egging on the near sort of possible confrontation at that moment with China. And I think a lot of people in China probably were hoping that 
the Chinese would divert her plane or do something to obstruct her, her visit to Taiwan. It was so openly reckless and provocative. And she's not the right wing. She's not the Trump group. She's not mega, make America great. She is the leader of the Democratic Party. And you have Biden, who's a Democrat, and Anthony Blinken, who's the Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan, they're all Democrats. And so a large part of the population in the United States that identify with the Democratic Party and thus might identify with themselves as liberals, at least on social issues, abortion rights, voting rights, things like that, they are really, at this point, so openly embracing a hyper-aggressive military foreign policy by U.S. imperialism that Parenti's formulations about what things were like in the United States 30 years ago don't really stand up anymore. Now, most of the right wing is also very, very pro-war. My point isn't that the right wing and the liberals have switched places, although some elements of the right wing are more isolationist, less interested in military overseas adventures, et cetera. But sort of the death of the doves, you have Henry Kissinger, who we all consider to be a great war criminal because in fact he was during the Vietnam War when he was uh, Secretary of State and responsible for the carpet bombing of Vietnam. He's one of the few voices in the US ruling class establishment now that say, look, Russia and China are big countries, major countries, independent countries. You can't treat them as if they're going to be like neo-colonies. That's never going to happen. They have to ha they have interests. And in order to avoid World War III, we have to take those interests into account. So you have Pelosi and the Democrats and most of the Republicans in this hyper-aggressive military policy. The doves are dead. Henry Kissinger, the former hawk, sounds like a dove, but it's only relative because the politics in America have shifted so dramatically since Parenti wrote that book. Anyway, that's a big sort of framing of the discussion, but I think it's very important in terms of what's going on inside the U.S. Oh, absolutely. And I think that the attitudes that we see emerging now, you know, we talk a lot about the idea of a new Cold War, but this isn't just rhetoric that comes from the left or from critics of American imperialism. This is the way that figures like Biden think of it. Basically, they have maintained that Cold War mentality, both of, you know, a sort of ideological anti-communism, anti-socialism, but even more so simply a straight out defense of and indeed promotion of American imperialism. And as they see that threatened, the intensity of their commitment to that vision only grows. And so whether, again, whether it's Obama, you know, who was the great liberal sort of standard bearer, or Biden now, who likes to present himself as such a liberal leader, that their commitment to American imperialism is profound. And of course, I mean, we should think back and remember that it was John Kennedy who got us into Vietnam, Lyndon Johnson, who not only perpetuated Vietnam, but, but invaded in the Caribbean and positioned the United States in its persistent hostility towards Cuba. You know, the Democratic Party and the so-called liberals have a long, long history of supporting imperialism. Their liberality, if we want to call it that, seems to extend to the degree that it has any substance at all, only as far as the borders. And there's no real sense of that in terms of preserving the power of American imperial ambitions overseas. You're absolutely right. I mean, within the Democratic Party, if you look back from Truman, you know, in the beginning of the Cold War, the Korean War, Kennedy and the Vietnam War, Johnson escalating the war, it's been a war party all along. But there is this change in public opinion among the people who would have historically considered themselves liberals who are either working class liberals or middle class liberals, you know, people in the larger society. We have this, maybe it's the media, there has been this tendency through Russiagate and the sort of nonstop propaganda against Russia and China, the demonization of Russia and China have reached such a level that the liberal part of the population, I'm not talking about the politicians per se or the ruling class, the people who would have been part of the, you know, ban the bomb movement or let's, you know, like have a nuclear freeze instead of 
war, nuclear war with the Soviet Union, that part of the population is basically quieted down. And so they may still identify with the Democratic Party and still identify in some ways as liberals, but liberalism as a political force is very, very, very diminished. And then you have like people in the Congress, like the Squad, AOC, you know, a handful of liberals who identify as democratic socialists, but they're, you know, essentially what would have been like LBJ type liberals in the 60s. They're very small. A lot of people on the left attack them for not being revolutionary, like, but why would we think they would be? They're liberals. But my point is that there has been this shift in American politics where in general and in the population, this sort of embrace of empire and embrace of imperialism and the narrative of imperialism. The reason I'm saying this is that because we are the socialist program, I believe that it's not possible to sustain modern day bourgeois liberalism, the old style liberalism, and that in order for you to have an actual critique and opposition to imperialism, militarism, and war, it has to be at this stage done within the framework of a deeper, more profound anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist orientation to recognize that you know, as the empire goes through periods of decline, the tendency towards making concessions, the tendency towards non-military methods or tactics have sort of gone by the wayside. And so the option isn't a better imperialism meaning a kinder, gentler imperialism versus a uglier imperialism. We have to get rid of imperialism and to recognize that China, the people in Russia, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, you know, they too are victims of imperialism. They too are the targets of imperialism. And we need to build a solidarity movement. And I, I want to sort of move as we get to the finish line here to talk about that because at one time, it wasn't just the Democrats who were more liberal. Think about the Nixon meetings with Mao Zedong or Nixon and Kissinger meeting with Zhou Enlai back in the early 1970s and the signing of a communique, the Shanghai communique in 1972, which is reaffirmed in 1979 and reaffirmed again in the 80s, where the U.S. recognizes that China is a major power, it's not going away, the communists are not about to be overthrown, and that Taiwan is indeed part of China. And, you know, this, by today's standards, Richard Nixon would be an extreme liberal. Richard Nixon would be more liberal in foreign policy than some people who are in the squad, even though he was considered to be a right-wing anti-communist. So in order for us to build a real anti-war movement, a movement of solidarity, we have to recognize that we're in a new political era and it has to be based on open sort of anti-imperialism, anti-capitalism, and of course, from our point of view in this program of socialism and the taboo on socialism has lifted so it's easier to talk to people about it, but we can't be and shouldn't be and should never have been, nor were some of us ever, tells to the Democratic Party or bourgeois liberalism, we have to have this kind of political clarity in terms of building a real movement for peace. And you're in Pivot to Peace. When people hear the message of Pivot to Peace or the Answer Coalition, they like it. I'm talking about the average folks, working class folks, middle class, poor people, people who aren't like foreign policy junkies or tied to one or another of the capitalist parties. They like the message of peace. And I think we have to premise our political organizing on that sort of program. Anyway, with that said, I'm going to give you the final word. What you've described, I think, is the great uh, sort of perplexing challenge for us at this point in our history and in our history as a country and our history as a movement that many people who, you know, are at least liberal, if not people who, who think of themselves as on the left, as radicals, even perhaps as revolutionaries. At this point in time, many of them seem to have accepted a vision of the world in which, in a sense, that kind of sort of there aren't any good guys left. They sort of accept the demonization of China. They think China has sold out and gone down the capitalist road. I guess they sort of, they may still have some kind of romantic attachment to the heroism of Cuba, but they certainly aren't to the wall about that kind of situation. And there's been a kind of 
I don't know, a, a willingness, an acquiescence in the, the discourse coming out of the ruling class, even as the United States has been exposed over and over and over again as, you know, lying and manipulating in its conduct, provoking wars, inflicting massive suffering on peoples all around the world. You know, it's, uh, as I say, it's perplexing because a lot of people who weren't fooled by, you know, by Vietnam and weren't fooled really even by the war on terror now seem, I don't know, as I say, sort of acquiescing in some of this new Cold War mentality. And I think that, yes, what we need now is a critique that is simple and straightforward that says that the problem isn't, you know, a bad policy here or a mistake of judgment there. The problem is the system of capitalism. It's the system of exploitation, the necessity to perpetually grow an economy based on the extraction of wealth from other people's work, whether that's the American worker here or people in countries all around the world. And that the viability of that capitalist system, and of course it was Lenin who talked about imperialism being the highest stage of capitalism, but imperialism is capitalism. The perpetuation of that system is what has allowed the American elites to enjoy the, the wealth and the, and the benefits that they've showered upon themselves for such a long time. And the threat to that, which is a real threat, is what drives their increasingly hysterical demonization of China and their efforts to impose their power, perpetuate their power around the world. But I think what we need to be is clear that the problems we face, whether it's problems in international relations or problems as fundamental as climate change, these arise from the very nature of the capitalist system. You know, socialism is back on the agenda. It's back in the public discourse. But we need to, to develop a profounder understanding of what socialism means and of what the critique of capitalism is and why, you know, the only solution is to change the system, not tinker with this and that little little fixture, but to fundamentally transform the system and the way that wealth is produced and shared by the people who produce it. And that's a task that is ongoing. It's one that I think is daunting, but it's one that we have to remain committed to. And, and really, it's the only way out of the crises which are increasingly pressing upon working people at home and around the world. Ken, thank you so much. I want to let our audience know that Ken and I, who have collaborated on numerous interviews are also collaborating on a new book that is coming out sometime in the coming months. It'll be the nine different shows that we did on Chinese foreign policy from 1949 to present. Ken is also the principal author of a new book, sort of assessing the different stages and evolutions of the Chinese socialist project. We'll be sure to bring to our audience all of the information about how people can get both of these books. Dr. Ken Hammond, thank you so much. As ever, Brian, wonderful to share some thoughts. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 